Romans chapter number 5. For the past few weeks, two or three weeks, uh, we've been studying through Romans chapter number 5, and we've been focusing on a phrase that Paul uses concerning the grace of God. And on five separate occasions in Romans chapter 5, he says about the grace of God that it is a much more thing. Uh, Grace is an abundant thing. Grace is an availing thing. And Paul describes to us what the grace of God does uh, that the old man and that the righteousness which is of the law could never do for us. Uh, I'm glad, listen, the, the reason that we are under the dispensation of grace is God didn't call an audible. It's always been meant to be by grace. That's been the redemptive plan of God from day one. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because the Bible calls Christ the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. There was a provision made long before there was ever a trespass made. That tells me that God knew exactly what was going to happen in humanity's history. And Paul shows us how that the dispensation of grace is superlative to the dispensation of the law. And he sums it up to us in a type uh, as he represents uh, the old man pictured for us in Adam and the new man uh, and what he has uh, been afforded through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes these things, and basically what he's saying is this, hey, this is what it was in Adam, but it's much more in Jesus Christ. This is what you had in Adam, but you've got much more in Jesus Christ. This was the condemnation that you had in Adam, but your justification is much more in Jesus Christ. And so it is showing to us the superlative nature of the grace of God. We talked a little bit about it here in Sunday school this uh, morning. We were teaching through the book of Galatians, and Paul conveys to us uh, these truths, how that uh, it has always, the design has always been that it's been by faith. And uh, God foreseen that He would justify the heathen by faith, preach the gospel unto Abraham. And before uh, the law ever came along, Abraham was uh, justified by placing his faith in God. You say, well, that's fine for before the law, but what about during the law? Well, Romans tells us that David was uh, justified, not by the works of the law, uh, but rather by placing his faith in God. So faith is the means. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul is trying to convey this to us in this type of Adam and Christ as the anti-type. We studied the first week and we saw how that the sacrifice of grace was a much more thing. Uh, the natural man uh, can only make so much of a sacrifice. When I was in high school, we'd, uh, you know, we'd have a yearbook every year. I don't even know if they still do that. I guess they do. Uh, it's probably all digital now. Somebody say amen, you know. Uh, they go post on your guest book. I don't know. But when I was in high school, we had yearbooks. And uh, we would uh, go through that, that yearbook. And everybody, their senior year, they'd pick, pick a Bible verse, you know. And you can tell who's spiritual. <laughs> because the folks that want and everybody's was like John 3.16 and Philippians 4.9 and 4.19. Now, if that's your favorite verse, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. But uh, a lot of us that didn't have no Bible knowledge, we'd just say whatever. You know, we had seen the guy with the, with the rainbow wig on TV holding a sign up. You know, that was our Bible verse. But uh, several of the young people would always, inevitably, every year you'd have a few seniors that would put uh, John 15, 13. And the reason they'd put that, we like the way that sounds. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But when Christ is conveying that to them in John chapter number 15... He is not saying that this is like the love that I have for you. Rather, what he is teaching them is the greatest way they can express their love for him is by laying down their lives, taking up the cross, and following him. 
You see, that's the greatest love that mankind can express. But what's the love of God? God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's the love of God. And it's a superlative thing. We saw that the sacrifice of grace was a superlative thing. We saw as we went a little further how that the scope of grace, we preached about it last week, is a superlative thing. Listen, everybody was took in by Adam's sin, but I want you to listen carefully. Everybody is also taken in by the gift of the grace of God. That does not mean that everybody is saved, but what it means is that the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared unto all men. Christ has tasted death for every man, and He has made provision for that. I want to preach for a little while this morning, uh, over the next few verses, Romans 5, 16 through 19, on this, the much more of the state of grace. I might say this, the much more of the station of grace. Maybe we could say this, the much more of the standing of grace. Or if you don't like that, maybe you could say the much more of the situation of grace. But I want to preach to you basically on this thought. Can I summarize it for you this morning? That we have a lot more in Jesus Christ. That our situation, as we stand here today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the situation that you stand in, the shoes that you walk in, the place that you find yourself, is much more than where Adam puts you. And it's much more than where the works of the law could ever have gotten you. Let's begin in verse number 16. We'll read a few verses. And if the Lord will help me, I'll try to thaw you out a little bit this morning. Amen? In verse number 16, Paul says this, "...and not as it was by one that sinned." So is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the privilege, for the health, for the freedom to gather here this morning. Now, Lord, we've come expecting something, and we've come needing something. So, Lord, we're depending upon the preached Word and the wooing and working of Your Spirit to cause in us that which would bring You the most glory. Lord, show us where we stand at aught with Thee and how we may be right with Thee. And, Father, we pray that in all things that take place that Christ would be lifted up. Lord, I love You this morning, and I thank You for loving me. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, again, as we follow this theme of Adam as the type and Christ as the antitype, it's important that we note the whole body and the whole context of what Paul's talking about. We talked a little bit last week how that these verses that we've read, uh, a portion of them are contained in a parenthetical statement. Now, you say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, that means God is telling us something, and then He wants to pause for a moment to tell us something about what He's telling us about. In other words, he is showing us how that Adam and uh, Christ are similar. But he wants to say a word lest we be confused. Now, uh, let me tell you something. I can very clearly see the similarities between Adam and Christ. And we can spend a lot of time talking about them. We'll say a word about a few. But my mind immediately acknowledges that there are some stark differences between Adam and Christ. 
Uh, I understand that Adam was created in innocence. I understand that the Son of God uh, was incarnated and lived and died and rose again the third day in absolute perfection. I'm aware of that. But I'm also aware that where Adam led us is vastly different than where Christ led us. And God's aware of that too. And so He is using language that we may not be very familiar with, but I believe if we take a moment, uh, we'd find that if we'll just change ourselves instead of changing our Bibles, we'll understand it a little better. Look again what it says in verse 15. He says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that they are similar, but in a different way. In other words, he's saying you'll see some similarities, but notice the differences. In verse 16, he says this, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the free gift. He's saying this, these are different, but with similarities. Notice the similarities between them. And I think if we sum it up in four different thoughts according to these verses, maybe we can get an understanding of what he's talking about. He begins in verse number 16 by showing us how that the pardon of grace is far superlative to the punishment of Adam's sin. Look at it with me in verse 16. I like this. He says, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. So, yes, they're similar, but there's a marked difference. What is the difference? For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. Now, I want you to notice with me the sweeping condemnation that took place when Adam sinned. You understand that when Adam sinned, when one man sinned, we know that that's true because verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, when Adam sinned, that all of humanity was spiraled and slung into depravity. The Bible tells us a little further on in verse 13 and 14 that this was true even for those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, you might say, well, uh, that's true, preacher, that Adam sinned, but I haven't sinned the way that Adam sinned. It doesn't matter that you've not sinned the way Adam sinned. It is in your blood. It is in your being. It is in your nature. He is your father. He's the father of us all in a physical and fleshly sense. And as such, the pollution that entered his nature has been passed down to your nature and my nature. You've heard preachers say this before, talk about the sin nature. I remember for some years a famous preacher made the statement, it was a big deal, and I found this, that I've got better things to preach about than what somebody said, amen? But but made the statement, he he said, you know, that uh, we're, we're, we're sinners because we sin. And uh, people jumped on that in a hurry. You say, why? Because it's not true. <laughs> we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. It is within you. It is within me. You know this to be true, that you don't have to teach a child to do the wrong thing. You must teach them to do the right thing. And if you don't believe that, just raise one for about two minutes, and you'll know that that's true. Uh, Whatever there is in the room, if they ain't supposed to touch it, that's what they need, that's what they want, that's what they cannot live without. But, you know, that's no different than Adam, is it? God placed Adam in perfection, uh, in a perfect environment, in a garden, and he pointed at one tree, and he said, Adam, that tree is the one tree that you're not to place your hand to, you're not to eat of it. And Adam said, that's the very tree that I need. That's the very one that I must partake of. Now, we know, we understand the story. But we also understand this, that though Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. Adam knew what he was doing, and he partook of the fruit just the same. And in that moment, all of mankind was swept into condemnation. The Bible says this back in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him 
who is that was to come. Uh, you, you can go all over your Bible and you'll find this universal truth. You can go all over the book of Romans. You don't have to go very far and you'll find that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You'll find that uh, all men are sinners, that there is none righteous, no, not one. You can go all the way back into the Old Testament. You know, you know how God sums up the first 1,600 years of human history? Are you ready? Uh, in, in Genesis chapter number 6, the first six chapters sum up the first 1,600 years in human history. And you know how he sums it up? He says that their, uh, their thoughts and their uh, intents and their imaginations were wicked continually and daily. That's God's commentary on where man gets himself. There is a sweeping condemnation. Adam ate of the fruit, and you're a child of Adam, and because of that, you're a sinner. But then I want you to notice what he says on the other side. He says, yes, when Adam ate of the fruit, one sin brought all this sin into our lives, into the human experience. One sin caused man to be sin-fallen and caused man to live as a sinner and to perform sin daily. But what happened when Christ came? Listen to this. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. <laughs> now, let me, let me say a word about that, that term justification, because I think, I think it helps us to understand it. How many of you believe it helps us to understand what our Bible's saying? Amen, sure. When we talk about justification, if I wanted to give you a big old fancy, you know, $10 theological term, I would say this. To, to be justified or the justification of the believer is the process, instantaneous process, after he has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, whereby the righteousness of Christ is applied on his account. And he stands justified in Jesus Christ. Uh, can I give you maybe a little simpler explanation? How many of you have a computer? Anybody? I know there's so few and far between today. But a few of you might have a computer, and you might have a word processing uh, program on that. And I use Microsoft Word most of the time. And you'll see a lot of times when you look through, if you're typing on a document, you'll see uh, three little boxes that have lines in them. And the boxes on the far left, all the lines start at the same spot. The boxes in the middle, they all sort of start in the middle, and they, they spread outward. And the one on the right, uh, it has all of the lines start from the right side of the page. If you hover your little mouse over that, you know what it's going to say? As you go over to either the far left or the far side, you're going to find the word justified. And that's what they call justified left or justified right. You know what the idea is? The idea is that you've set them all to the same standard, and they've met the standard. Uh, when the believer is justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, the standard was what? The standard was His perfect, sinless, righteous Son. That was God's standard for what holiness is. In Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. He is the express image of God's glory. He is the standard by which everything is measured. And so for us to be justified, what does that mean? That means we're placed in Him and we're set at the same place that He's set at. Well, where does he sit, my brother? He sits at the right hand of the Father. And so as justified believers, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's what justification means. And you know what Paul is saying here. We see in this passage a sweeping condemnation, but I want you to notice a sufficient justification. He's saying, hey, when Adam sinned, when Adam ate of the fruit, all of humanity was spiraled into depravity because of this one sin. All of these sins took place. But listen, because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was justification enough to cover all those sins. Every bit of it was covered. It's of many offenses under justification. Let me tell you something. I'm glad that my past has been settled at Calvary. I know there's some that would say, Preacher, I'm a good person. Well, what would you do before you were a good person? <laughs> I don't know a single one of us that hadn't had rough patches in life. Every one of us has. And some might say, Well, Preacher, I'll promise God that I'll be a good person from here on out. 
And some might say, preacher, I'll atone for my present by doing good works and by giving to charity. But what are you going to do about your past? What are you going to do about the sins that are past? The Bible says this, that Jesus Christ, when He died in our place, He died for the forbearance of sins that are past. In other words, He made the payment where you owed a debt to God. Christ came and in His righteousness, He paid that debt for you and I. And you know, now we stand justified with Him. You say, but preacher, I've messed up. It doesn't matter. It's not your righteousness God's looking at. It's Christ's righteousness that God's looking at. You've been justified. You've been brought up to the standard. You've been set at the right hand of God the Father. And there you stand complete and whole in Him. You've been set justified. It was sufficient. He said, preacher, I've messed up a lot. Well, that's okay. Jesus Christ was very righteous. His righteousness was eternal. His righteousness was infinite. And through His righteousness, we can be set right with God. I think the pardon of grace was bigger than the punishment of sin. But I want you to notice verse 17. Look at the next thing he says. For if by one man's offense, that's talking about Adam, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. I want to say that the pardon of grace is a superlative thing. We stand a lot better in grace's pardon than we ever did in our own righteousness. But let me say this, that the permission of grace is far vaster than the bondage that sin brought to us. Now, I want to be very careful with what I say, because I don't want you to believe that grace is a permissive thing. But I might say this, that in Jesus Christ there is liberty this morning. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. If the Son hath made you free, and we'll talk about it in a moment, then you're free indeed. And I want you to zero in on the usage of that word reign in verse number 17. Paul says this, okay, we've been made justified in Jesus Christ. But he says, what about the authority that sin and death had in our lives? There was an authority that was placed over them. You understand. I want you to listen very carefully. You understand that until sin entered into the world, death was not a reality. If Christ had not been made sin for us, He could have never died. Somebody say amen to that. He could have never died. You know know what the concern was when they ate of the fruit in the garden? I don't know if you remember this, but if you remember your Bible, you'll note it. When they had sinned in the garden, in that moment, the clock began to tick on Adam's life. You know, people always quote that verse where it says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. You've heard that before? You understand that Adam's name literally meant man? You understand that, right? You know that immediately after that, God says this, His days are 120 years. Now, what does that mean? If God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for His days are 120 years, does that mean God is going to let you live backslidden for 120 years? I don't think that's what God's saying. I understand that there is an application in which God had been striving with humanity. But I believe who God was talking about when He said with man, I believe He was talking about Adam. And He was saying this, Ever since Adam ate of the fruit, I have appointed a certain point of uh, of time, and he's only got 120 years left on that particular uh, period of time. I will not strive with him always, because the clock began to tick when Adam ate of the fruit. And you may remember that uh, whenever they uh, banished man from the Garden of Eden, do you remember why they said... Uh, God said this, that the reason they banished him was lest he eat of the tree of life. 
You know what the danger was? The danger was that here they are living in imperfect sinful conditions and they could have partaken of the tree of life and lived eternally in that sin-falling condition. They could have stayed in that shape. Why? Because death had gained authority through man's sin. Now death was wearing a crown and holding a scepter. The Bible says death reigned by one. I want you to note the false liberty of sin. Whenever God talks about sin's influence in a man's life, He talks about it in terms of chains and bondage and dominion. You know, I look at lost people, and I I think about teenagers in particular. I was a youth pastor for a little while, and and I dealt with teenagers, and, and we've got teenagers around here, and I deal with them now. And, you know, what every teenager wants is they want freedom. Isn't that true? I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want anybody... I remember, man, I, let me tell you something. It was rough in school. Uh, you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, uh, how many of you... Let me ask you something. I want to say this just right. How would you feel if you was talking to me and I, and I looked at you and I went, shh? See, you don't remember that because you've been an adult for a few years. But when you was in school, you got shush constantly. Don't you remember that? You'd be sitting there talking to somebody and somebody would go, shh. If somebody did that to me now, I'd, I'd turn around and say, shh yourself. What business is it of yours if I'm talking? They live under a lot of rules. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about the school I grew up in, you had to tuck your shirt in. And, uh, and it was rough. I barely survived several days with a shirt tucked in. And we would actually do this. We, we would actually, we'd take our shirts and we'd untuck them until just the hem was tucked in. Uh, I, how stupid is that? But we did it. We just hated the rules. We hated the, the, the strictures of life, the things that had been placed upon us. And we wanted what? We wanted freedom. Most kids, when they get out of high school, they spend a little time uh, sowing their wild oats, is what people call it. And you know what they find? Just like the prodigal, they find this, that daddy's home wasn't quite as strict as they thought it was. Let me tell you something. You may not be happy with the rules in your life, but I promise you, you've got less rules in the Father's house than you do in the hog pen. The old preachers used to say this, that uh, all the devil's nickels are plug nickels, and all of his diamonds are plastic, and all of his promises are false and empty. And the reality is this, that the world will tell us there is great liberty in sin, but that is not the truth of the matter. There is nothing in sin but bondage. And you know how we know that's true? The Bible talks about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. It says that uh, Jesus Christ, through dying for our sins, He defeated Him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through their whole lifetime were subject to fear and bondage through death. The lost man lives at any moment afraid that he's going to have to meet death and meet God. That's not a real liberty. Christ talks about it in the book of John. I want want to read it to you. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to. But uh, in the book of John, chapter number 8, there was a group of Jews that had believed on him. And Jesus looked at him. He said this, If ye continue in my word, verse 31, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him. What did they say? They said, We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now, I want you to stop and think about the foolishness of what they just said. We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. Now, this is a group of people that have been in bondage more than any other people group in all of humanity. They had lived the vast majority of their history in bondage. 
I mean, ever listen, ever since the Assyrians came and, and destroyed the northern tribes, they had lived from that moment up to the very moment that they were speaking. They were under Roman bondage at that very moment. But they couldn't see the bondage. You know why? Because they were allowed to do what they wanted. They couldn't see the chains that existed just a few inches out of reach of their will and their desires. Let me tell you something. Sin looks good. It seems like it really lets you do what you want. But you just try and quit it. You just try and quit it. I know you think you've got liberty to do anything that you want to do, but just go ahead and try to quit living in sin, and you'll find out how much liberty sin gives you. Oh, Lester Roloff, I always think about him when we sing that little as much. He used to sing it all the time. He made this statement when he said when he got saved. He said, ever since I've been saved, I drink all I want to. He said, ever since I got saved, I cuss as much as I want to. He said, I do everything just as much as I want to. But when I got born again, God came around and changed my want to. And he created a new life within me. And you know, the truth that he was trying to convey was this, that the saved man has a choice in how he lives. Notice again the way that it's said. It says that death reigned by one. Death was reigning over humanity. But listen to this, much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, I understand there is an application of this that we may not broach, and I believe it's valid. I understand there is a sense in which we are reigning in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But what I want you to notice is this, that when death was reigning, man had no choice. But now, in grace, he's not reigning under, he's reigning with Christ Jesus. You say, preacher, what are you trying to convey? I want you to notice the free life of grace that the saved man lives. You know what Christ's answer was to them? They said this, we were never in bondage. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever. But the son abideth forever. You know what the truth was there? Uh, The servant, it don't take much for him to get kicked out of the house. Uh, In other words, uh, they are serving sin and living in sin. Everything might be okay, but it'll be okay till it's not okay. You know, that's how it was with the prodigal son. Everything was okay till it wasn't okay no more. Uh, sin was fine until sin started to hurt. Uh, the world was okay till it started to kick him and cast him to the hog pen. And all of a sudden now, there's no love. There, uh, listen, there's no fellowship. There's no communion. Uh, he's been used and abused and cast to the side like refuse. And there's nothing that the world sees of value in him. The, the servant abideth not forever, but the son, he abideth forever. And you know, he goes on to say this, And if the son hath made you free, you're free indeed. The saved person has a choice. A choice. The lost person has no choice. They must live in sin. You say, but I know plenty of moral lost people. Yeah, morally dead. They may be moral, but they're not spiritually alive. Uh, They may do good things, but they do good things out of a self-serving purpose. Listen, I'm for loving your family. You understand? I mean, I I think you ought to love your family. I think occasionally even your extended family. I I think if it gets real rough, maybe even your in-laws, okay? But... I'm for loving your family, but the lost man, he loves his family because his family brings him joy. Not out of sense of duty and obligation and glory to God. Uh, You see, the lost man, he may go down, he may work in a soup kitchen, but he doesn't do it because it brings God glory. He does it because it soothes his conscience and helps him sleep at night. At the end of the day, everything is self-serving. And you can't say uh, God and mammon. It's one of the two. The lost man, he may do good things, but he's doing it in the service of mammon, of that which is temporal. He's doing it in the service of self. But see, the righteous man, the man that's been justified, the man that's had his eyes open, that's been enlightened and awakened uh, to the spiritual realm, he now has a choice. 
And you had a choice. You exercised that choice this morning. And listen, I'm sure there's a lot of folks that aren't here and couldn't be here. I'm aware of that this morning. But I want to brag on those that are here this morning. You made a choice. You could have looked out the window and said, well, it's a little dreary. Nobody would fault me if I just stayed home. And I'm not sure what the roads look like. And, and maybe I'll just stay home. But you said, no, that's my flesh talking. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to church anyway. Listen, some of y'all are here, and this ain't even your church. You could have got up and said, well, my church ain't even having church. I just stay in. Everything be all right. You could have done that. That would have been okay. Uh, but instead, you said, no, I want to feed the new man this morning. And you made a choice. You made a choice in the matter. That's the free life of grace. Not that you might be forced to serve God, but that you might have freedom to serve God and serve Him in the freedom of the new life. We see in this passage the pardon of grace is spoken of. We see the permission of grace is denoted. But I want you to notice the position of grace that he speaks of. Look at verse number 18. The Bible says this, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. I want you to notice the judgment that was passed. When Adam sinned, we all were condemned in him. Did not matter if we had sinned in the way he sinned. Didn't matter if we sinned as much as he sinned or less than he sinned. Because you understand that the righteousness of God is just that. It's the righteousness of a thrice holy God. Uh, you've heard the illustration before probably so many times. I mean, it, it's just worn out on you. But I want to share it with you again. We understand that the idea of sin has the idea of missing the mark. And it does not matter if you miss it by a few inches or if you miss it by several miles. The mark has been missed. Uh, the, uh, you say, well, there's no Scripture for that. Well, James would argue with you because James says this, that the holy law of God is like unto a chain with links. And if one law is broken, it doesn't matter which law is broken, the chain is broken. Uh, they say that old Jonathan Edwards, uh, the Puritan preacher, used to preach a sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. He would liken the sinner to a spider dangling over the flames of hell, which at any moment a flame might leap up and, uh, and, and scorch the thread that is holding him above uh, judgment and above death and above damnation, uh, ever sliding, ever tending towards uh, damnation and condemnation. And, uh, you know, that's what the Bible conveys you and I like and the lost sinner like, only here's the difference. Uh, we're not a spider hanging from a web. Uh, we're a sinner hanging from God's law. And James says, if you break any one of those commandments, then it doesn't matter what it is, your condemnation is sealed. And when Adam sinned, that sin nature is passed on so that every man, woman, and child ever to live in this world, save the precious Son of God, has committed sin in their life. And we're condemned by it. We're condemned by it. We don't live up to God's standard of righteousness. There was a judgment that was passed upon you and I. The Bible says this in the book of Romans and chapter number 3, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what's the result of that? Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is what? Death. It's death upon our lives. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7 when he says this, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, Paul says this, at one time I didn't know I was a sinner. I didn't realize I was a sinner. But when the law came into the, the spectrum of my view, it showed me and convinced me that I was a sinner. He says in the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death uh, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. You know, God's main problem with the lost man is not that he's unrighteous. His main problem with the lost man is that he's dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He, he's complete, his, his, his mind is darkened. His eyes are blinded. 
Uh, He has no ability in and of himself to respond in a perceptible and significant way to a holy God. He is dead and lifeless. So what can we do about that, preacher? Well, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 says this about those that are saved. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He can breathe life into you. Only God has the ability. Listen, the priest can't do that for you. The denominations can't do that for you. Uh, the, the, listen, the, the charity workers can't do that for you. You can't do it for yourself. Uh, one thing about a dead man, he sure is helpless. Somebody say amen to that. I've never seen a dead man put on his own suit for his funeral, have you? Uh, he's dead. He cannot move. He cannot function. He cannot do anything. Uh, you see, he can't do anything. Somebody has to do something to him and for him. And that's what God does for us. He saves us. He quickens us. He makes us alive. We see the judgment that was passed, but I want you to notice the justification that prevailed over us. The judgment came upon us, and what was God's answer to it? The Bible says this, Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. You see, when Adam sinned, all men fell. And now that Christ has died, all men could be saved if they'd come unto Him. We know that not all men will, but all men could. Because he said this, Any that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. He's tasted death for every man. He's the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. Uh, The justification of God is upon all. Uh, The grace of God has been extended to all. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You say, preacher, I'm condemned in Adam. Yes, but you can be justified in Christ. You can be justified in Christ. You say, how does that happen, preacher? The judgment of God came upon me uh, when Adam died. Yes, uh, but the righteousness of Christ can come upon you through His resurrection and through His life. Uh, Through that, His righteousness can be substituted for your righteousness. Listen, I don't know when we're going to get it in churches. I I don't know when we're going to understand. I don't know when it's really going to finally hit home uh, that we don't become a Christian by trying real hard or by making promises. We become a Christian by placing our faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. That's the only means. That's the only way. It's to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. Not the righteousness you mean to do. Not the righteousness you promised to do. Not the righteousness that you already have done. But to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's never been your righteousness. Because your righteousness is filthy rags. Your righteousness is putrid in the eyes of God. It doesn't mean anything to God. But Christ's righteousness, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. We see the justification that prevailed. But then finally, I want you to notice in verse number 19, he speaks of the superlative nature of the persuasion of grace. Look what he says. For as by one man's disobedience... Isn't it interesting that he denotes it as disobedience? He's called it an offense. It's called another place in the Bible, sin, transgression, unrighteousness. But here Paul uses the word disobedience. Why? He's wanting to convey to us and to emphasize the rebellious nature of humanity. 
He says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, again, we've already established that that term as it's used in Romans chapter 5, when it says many, it, it, it is uh, not a quantitative uh, statement, but it is, it is to characterize or it is to show us uh, the vastness of the number. And the number that is, uh, that is denoted in it is the number all. <laughs> you say, how do I know that? Well, back in verse number 12, it says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all. All men, all men are included. And it says in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So evidently in Romans chapter 5, when God says many, uh, he's trying to show us the vastness of that number. He's talking about all. He says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I want you to note with me, first of all, the tendency of sin. He says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Not just many committed sin, but many were made sinners. It changed the nature of humanity when Adam ate of the fruit. Now, I, I, think, we ought to, I think we have liberty to speak where God speaks. And I think we ought to be cautious of speaking where God does not speak. Uh, I, I think there, sometimes we can speculate too much on the condition of Adam. But suffice it to say that uh, physical perfection and mental and spiritual innocence, which is what Adam was created in, are not the same as justification. Adam was created in innocence, meaning he had never known sin. But that did not mean that Adam was unable to sin, as evidenced by the fact that he ate of the fruit. Nor does it mean that after he ate of the fruit, he did not adopt the same tendencies that you and I carry with us to this very day. The nature of mankind changed when he ate of the fruit. And now there is a tendency to sin in the human nature. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time talking about it in the book of Galatians, about man's attempts to be righteous through the works of the law. And I know we don't try to keep the law. Most of us don't today. If you do, then just send me all your extra bacon and, and shrimp and crab legs, and I'll take care of those for you. Most of us don't do that. I understand that. But we do try to be made righteous before God through good works, which was really what the spirit of the law was, was the attempt to try to be made righteous uh, unto God by good works. And we understand God purposed that it would show many couldn't do that. But when people kept the law, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to keep the rule book to try to be a good person before God. But you know, they found it to be impossible, just as you and I find it to be impossible. How many good works is enough good works? What's good enough? Uh, somebody might be better than somebody else. Listen, I might be better than you today, but you might be better than me tomorrow. And the truth is, all of us can find a yesterday somewhere where we weren't good at all. All of us are sinners. It is our nature to sin. Uh, I've already noted it, but you don't have to teach a, a little child to, to do wrong. I found this to be true. You don't, even, uh, you don't even have to teach a grown adult to do wrong. It's within their nature to do it. How many of you know people, and I know people in my life, let me say this, that this is within me. It swells within me, and I know it does within you too. Uh, but have you ever noticed how the go-to answer when you're getting caught is always to lie? You ever notice that? 
I know some people live their life that way. <laughs> Amen? Uh, that, I mean, they just as soon, and they get to the place where they're not even trying to lie to get out of something. They're just lying because it's second nature to them. They breathe lies. And I've known people like that. But do you know that within me and you, and you know this to be true, uh, that even us, even if, if we are, are walking with the Lord, even if we're in fellowship and in communion with Him, still when something happens, when there's contention, when there's a problem, when we feel like we're caught, there's that knee-jerk reaction to want to lie, to try to get out of it, to want to spin it a certain way, to want to color it up some way that doesn't look quite as bad. That's our nature. That is our tendency. That's what's within humanity. So what can combat that? Well, we see the tendency of sin. But I want you to notice the teaching of grace. And I use that word teaching very carefully. Look what he says in verse number 19. We'll close with this thought. He says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I cannot convey to you the theological importance of that little statement. Not by the obedience of many, but by the obedience of one, many are made righteous. Again, this conveys the truth that our righteous standing in God has nothing to do with our good works or bad works, but rather has to do in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But the Bible says this, that by that many are made righteous. I don't want to rob the text of its power or of its meaning. The thing it's trying to convey is this, because Adam ate of the fruit... All men became sinners and lived in sin. But because Christ bore the curse, all men, if they'll come unto Him, can be made righteous and live in righteousness. Let me tell you something. The grace of God, Paul said in the book of Titus, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And what does it do? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. See, the grace of God teaches us and changes us and molds us. Uh, you know how that happens, and I don't have as uh, I, I wish. I told him this morning. That I told him I've got two, three, four, five sermons I could preach, and I'm doing my best to not preach them all right now. Amen. And so I don't have time to explore it like I'd like to. But but you know how that happens in our lives. You know how the grace of God transforms us. It's not necessarily that we get up from the moment of salvation and we never have a tendency to sin. We never have a temptation to do wrong. I, I, I've heard people tell stories about God giving them delivery from, from, you know, deliverance from addictions and things. I believe God can do that, but, uh, you know, I'm not dismissing that. I, I believe God can do that. But, but I've known lots of Christians that they get up from, uh, from the altar and they, they've asked Christ to forgive them and save them. Uh, and they walk out of this uh, door and they walk into a, a hurricane and the temptation is still there and the struggle is still there. It's not that it just magically goes away, but you know what happens? Now all of a sudden the Spirit of God dwells within us. And we don't have to stumble about in the dark trying to figure out what to do to please God. Now the Spirit of God will tell us exactly what we need to do to please Him. And now it's a matter of simple obedience to the Spirit of God. The grace of God is exercised in our life by the leading of God's Spirit. That's why I say you don't become righteous by trying real hard, by doing better, by making promises. Uh, you become righteous by daily living in obedience to the leading of the Spirit of God. 
You say, preacher, I didn't feel him today. Well, I guess you ought to keep doing what you was doing yesterday. You say, preacher, I, you know, I've got questions. There's things I wonder about. Well, God's got a will and he wants you to know it. And so he'll reveal it to you when the time comes. But he's given you a Bible to read and to study and to live and to practice. And he'll lead you and guide you if you'll follow the leading of his spirit. That's how the grace of God teaches us. By continual, consistent, and simple obedience to the leading of the Spirit of God. That's how it happens. Let me tell you something. If God had just laid out a rule book and said, Here you are, fellas, now keep it, we wouldn't have lasted very long. But instead, He doesn't just lay out a bunch of letters because the letter killeth, but what? The Spirit, it does what? It giveth life. So the Spirit of God indwells us, and we in obedience walk in accordance with His leading. And that is the way that our life is transformed, and that is the way that the life of Christ is lived through us. That's what Paul meant when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Saying, this isn't Paul's decisions, this isn't Paul's passions, this isn't Paul's ambitions. Paul would be out in left field doing something else. But I crucified Paul. I nailed old Saul of Tarsus to the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He says, listen, I ain't calling the shots here. I'm just following in obedience the leading of the Spirit of God. I have a choice whether I'm going to follow. I've got more liberty than I had when I was living in sin. When I was living in sin, there wasn't no way but to live in sin. But now that I live in grace, I have a choice in the matter. But if I just live in obedience to Him, you know what happens? It transforms and teaches us and makes us new. Man, only grace could do that. Only grace could do that. And it's done it in our lives. And it it seeks to do it in yours this morning if you'll yield unto the Lord.